Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel 23, this is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Kilah and are plundering the threshing floors. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and deliver Kilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Kilah against the ranks of the Philistines? And then David inquired of the Lord once more. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Kilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Kilah and fought with the Philistines, and he led away their livestock and struck them with a great slaughter. Thus David delivered the inhabitants of Kilah. Now it came about when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Kilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. When it was told Saul that David had come to Kilah, Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he shut himself in by entering a city with double gates and bars. So Saul summoned all the people for war to go down to Kilah to besiege David and his men. Now David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him. So he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Kilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Kilah surrender me into his hands? Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Kilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Kilah, and they went wherever they could go. When it was told Saul that David had escaped from Kilah, he gave up the pursuit. David stayed in the wilderness and the strongholds and remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. Now David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David, while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horish and encouraged him in God. Thus he said to him, Do not be afraid, <clears throat> because the hand of Saul, my father will not find you, and you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And Saul, my father, knows that also. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed at Horish while Jonathan went to his house. And Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds of, at Horish on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Now then, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to do so, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed of the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go now, make more sure, and investigate and see his place where his haunt is, and who has seen him there, for I am told that he is very cunning. So look and learn about all the hiding places where he hides himself, and return to me with certainty. And I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. 
When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, and he came down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard it, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were surrounding David and his men to seize him. But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid on the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went to meet the Philistines. Therefore, they called that place the Rock of Escape. David went up from there and stayed in the strongholds of En Gedi. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we look at your word that you would strengthen us, that you would give us wisdom, that your spirit would illumine our minds that we would be those who hear your word and do it to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Be seated. <clears throat> so a little bit of review up to this point. David is still in his wilderness wanderings. He's going about uh, trying to keep away from Saul. Saul is trying to kill David. Saul wants David gone. Um, why do you think why do you think David is is having to go through this period? It's perplexing, right? Because he's already been anointed king. Saul is clearly apostate and has gone off the uh reservation, so to speak. And yet here is David having to wander about not just in Judah, but in foreign lands, in the land of the Philistines. And um why do you think that is? Um, perhaps it's for the same reason that Jesus, Jesus was pushed out by the Spirit into the wilderness at the beginning of, of his ministry, right? Before he started his work as, or his official work, um, those three years of ministry in Israel, he was tested in the wilderness, right? He was tested there. Um, <clears throat> he, he was tempted by the, um, by the devil and resisted. And so he learned obedience through the things that he suffered there. I think David is going through the same thing. He's learning obedience through the things that he's suffering. Uh, This is how the Spirit often works, um, causing us to to suffer so that we might uh, learn obedience. And this is David being prepared to be king, right? As Saul is wasting away, David is being prepared by the Spirit, pushed out into the wilderness in a sense to uh, undergo testing, and, and is being found faithful. The temptations will be pretty strong for David, won't they? I mean, he's tempted in the wilderness, isn't he? I mean, he's going to have a couple times where he could kill Saul. But that's the Lord's anointed, and he does not give in to that temptation. So we see... We see King David resisting temptation even even as Jesus later did. Um, Saul's apostasy is now very clear. You remember in the last chapter, it's been a while since we were there, but he killed the priests at Nob. He killed all the the whole priestly city. Um, he, he's, he's now a clearly an affliction to the people of God, and he's protecting those who are not God's people. And at the very end of 22, remember that David admits his own fault in that affair with the priests at Nob. Uh, he, remember, he ate the bread. He got the sword of Goliath. 
and he said to Ahimelech that he was on a mission from Saul. And then it is Doeg that ends up killing them. And David at the end says, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. He says that to Abiathar. Abiathar is the one member of the priestly family that escapes, and he sticks with David from that point on. So the first thing we see in this, so, so I think in this period of, of Samuel, what we're seeing is David, David taking on kingly characteristics and um, the test being specific to, the, to what God had called him to. And so in this first thing, we see David as a deliverer, this, this incident at Kila. Um, <clears throat> David inquires of the Lord when, before he goes, little lesson to be learned there. He inquires of the Lord not when he's in the middle of battle, but, when, but before he gets into the situation. Uh, Philistines are fighting against Kila and are plundering the threshing floors. And David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? He wants to know what, um, what the Lord would have him do. And the Lord tells him to go. Go and attack the Philistines and deliver Kila. But, but who hesitates? David is probably ready to go, but his men aren't. And his, why are his men not ready to go? Because they're, I mean, they're running from Saul already. And when you're running from somebody to go and attack somebody else is pretty risky business. And so they say, look, we're afraid here in Judah, right? We're already running from Saul. How much more than if we go to Kila against the ranks of the Philistines? Is this really the best time to do this? They question it. And what's David's response? Well, let's ask the Lord. Let's ask the Lord. Then David inquired of the Lord once more. Let's ask the Lord. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Kila, and I will give the Philistines into your hand. The same, um, a very similar statement to what was before. So David and his men went to Kila and fought with the Philistines. He led away their livestock and struck them with a great slaughter. And David delivered the inhabitants of Kila. So he's delivering Right? Saul is afflicting the people. David is now delivering the people from the Philistines, right? which is his job as the king. So he's a deliverer. Praise the Lord for that. He's winning, right? and he's following the commands of God. God says, go, he goes. Uh, king David is delivering his people. Then Saul arrives. Okay? Um, now it came about, this is 6, when Abiathar the son of Ahimelech fled to David at Kila, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. So when Abiathar comes, he's got the priestly ephod, uh, a sign of, of the, the authority of the priesthood. And um, Saul finds out that David has come to Kila. And Saul once again is like, ha ha, this time I've got King David. Or I've got David, he wouldn't call him king. Um, God has delivered him into my hand, for he shut himself in by entering a city with double gates and bars. He thinks he's trapped in, in this city. So Saul summoned all the people of war to go down to Kila to besiege David and his men. Now David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him, so he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Um, bring the ephod here. And, and so David... David inquires of the Lord, this time, it seems with the help of Abiathar, it seems with the help of the priestly 
uh, garments in the position of Abiathar. And he says, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Kilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men, and listen to the question, will the men of Kilah surrender me into his hand? So now David wants to know what's going to, he's in the city, he's just delivered them, but he wants to know whether they're going to betray him. Now, are they going to deliver me up to King Saul? Are, and so, you know, that could be because Kilah's, Kilah's caught between a rock and a hard place. This is the king of Israel. This is Saul. And yet David is, is too anointed by Samuel and his king. And yet is not, um, is not yet officially in that position, we would say. Will the men of Kilah surrender into my hand, me into his hand? Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And David gets a direct answer. He will come down. He will come down. Then David said, he asks again. He comes back. He says, well, good, you've answered my second question. What about my first question? Will the men of Kilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And, and the Lord said, they will surrender you. Now, is that what happens? No, that's not what happens. But does God know what could happen in every circumstance? Yeah, he knows what could happen in every circumstance. He has, he has that sort of depth of knowledge, not just what will happen, but what could happen in every circumstance. And, and so he tells him, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, so, so they hear that from the Lord, and they're like, okay, we need to flee. We need to get out of Dodge. Then David and his men, about 600, notice that number 600. In the last chapter, it was 400. Now it's 600, so it seems that they're... There are more men coming around David, another a sign of the increase of his authority. And David and his men, about 600, rose and departed from Kilah, and they went wherever they could go. They just got out of there. They just went out. And when it was told Saul that David had escaped from Kilah, he gave up the pursuit. Okay, they, they moved, they, um, they got past him. Uh, and then David, they... they they wander around now simply trying to stay away from Saul's grass. David stayed in the wilderness in the strongholds, remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. God is actively protecting King David. And then, now Jonathan returns. Jonathan comes back into the scene. And this is where I want to... Um, settle and think a bit. Now David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horish and encouraged him in God. Encouraged him in God. So Jonathan goes out there. Um, easy place to get to? Probably not. Risks? Probably. Um, Philistines? Saul? all trying to get to David. And Jonathan somehow gets to David, which Saul can't do. So he's led there by the Lord. And what does it say he did? He encouraged him in God. And just think about that. Think, pause and think about that. David, David is, uh, is in a hard spot. He's running from Saul. He's running for his life. He's, uh, he's having to provision 600 men. He's 
he's just delivered a whole city, right? There's probably been wounds received in that. And, and, now, and now Jonathan just comes to him and, and, and encourages him in God. It doesn't say he does anything else other than encourage him in God. He made that trip just to encourage that, again, so we, turn, we return to this topic of friendship, the friendship that Jonathan and David had. Now, it's, it's a little bit superficial just to talk about what Jonathan and David had as friendship. They've covenanted with each other. And, and you have to remember that, that Jonathan is Saul's son. And Jonathan has committed his loyalty to David in, in, a, in an official sense. Jonathan was the prince of the kingdom, Right? The position of king was potentially his, and yet Samuel the prophet had anointed David. And so Jonathan has committed his loyalty. I mean, that's, a, that's not just an act of friendship. That's an act of, of government. I mean, that's an act of, of statehood. He is, he is, he is um, bowing to David and um, submitting himself to... Uh, and, and committing his loyalty to David. But nonetheless, friendship involves loyalty too. And I think it's still a way that we can talk about the relationship. Um, uh, we all need encouragement from our friends, don't we? We all need encouragement at times, right? Is there anybody you know who can exist without encouragement? I don't know if you... There may be some stoic people out there that can just live their life in their mind and, and not need encouragement. But, um, but everybody needs encouragement. Uh, that's why I went... That's why each year I go to this conference up in, in Indiana with uh, other men. And uh, I need encouragement from men. I have the encouragement of my family and the encouragement of the body here and um, people here. But there's, but there's something about that conference that encourages me. And we all get together and we're all trying to, it's intentional, we try to encourage one another. We talk about the ministry and what's going on and we, we're, you know, it's, it's just, it's, a, it's an important time. It's an important time. And so I, I thought of the, that conference as I thought about this, this trip that Jonathan makes just to encourage him. Um, men need that sort of uh, camaraderie. Men need that encouragement, as well as women. Women need the same sort of encouragement there. And um, the encouragement of, of friends, but the encouragement of those who are in, in battle together. I'll come back to that. Um, <clears throat> have you ever, I mean, but think about the timing of this also. Have you ever received encouragement from God at the right moment? At the just precise moment where you thought, okay, um, this is really difficult. Again, I always, my paradigm for that now is Mary, Mary's uh, phone call to me. When I'm despairing in my office, pouring my eyes out in tears and just wondering what the Lord is doing. And, and I pray, God, have, you know, somebody needs to talk to me now. And bring my phone rings and it's Mary and she just says, you know, I was just thinking about you and thought you needed some encouragement. I was like, what a gift from the Lord. What a gift from the Lord. My wife is a constant source of encouragement, but 
that day she wasn't near me. And it was Mary that the Lord called on and gave me that encouragement. And so I think you've all, you've all had that, those times where you see that the Lord's hand was in this encouragement. Think of David receiving Jonathan. Think of David at this moment out in the wilderness of Ziph, and Jonathan arrives. This, this man whom, whose friendship meant more to him than the love of women. And he arrives. Just think of the great encouragement, the, the bolstering of his faith that that would, would lead to. Um, it may be that you're in a position where you need to be the one making the trip to visit David, right? You need to be the one making the effort to encourage others, right? We should always be thinking about that. Who needs encouragement? And, and am I the one that needs to make the special effort in order to do that? Do I need to travel across Judah in order to um, encourage a David as he wanders about the wilderness? Um, <clears throat> Think about that. Jonathan thinks mere encouragement is a reason to make that trip. I mean, we, we just don't think that way, right? We, might have, we, we have to have a bigger reason than this person needs encouragement sort of to, to make that trip. And we shouldn't. That should be enough. Uh, I wanted to encourage you. That's why I've, I've dropped by your... Okay, boys, you can stop now. And that's why, you know, you drop by somebody's office, or that's why you make a trip, uh, you know, you're traveling to Florida and you, you go two states out of your way in order to visit somebody, right? Um, make that sacrifice. And then he gives words to David. It's not just his presence that encourages David, it's also what he says. Thus he said to him, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. Because the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you, and you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And Saul, my father, knows all of this. Knows that also. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed at Horish while Jonathan went to his house. So what did Jonathan say to him? Don't be afraid. Saul's not going to find you. You will be king over Israel. Those are all things that Samuel had prophesied. So he's just reminding him of the word of God. This is what the prophet Samuel has said to you. These things will come to pass. So let's trust the word of God. Let's trust the prophet. So he's just repeating those things to his, his brother. And then he declares his loyalty. I will be next to you. I'm still with you. I will be next to you. Um, I, yes, I'm Saul's son, but I am committed to you. And then finally he says, Saul knows this. And that's why he's so angry. That's how I read that. Saul knows all this. Saul knows what's going to come to pass. So again, they make a covenant. You remember back in chapter 20, they made a covenant with each other. Uh, 20 verse 12, Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time, tomorrow or the third day, behold, if there is good feeling toward David, shall I not then send to you and make it known to you? If it pleases my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not make it known to you and send you away that you may go in safety and may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? In other words, when you're king, don't kill me. 
You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. Right? So they make this covenant again. Now, here's something else to think about. This is the last time that David and Jonathan see each other. This is it. This is the last time that they're together, and the next time that um, we, we read of Jonathan, it's at the end of this book, and he is slain. He is dead, um, as is his father. Okay, we'll come back, um, come back in a minute. Let's finish the passage. The Ziphites now come along, and they come to Saul, and they betray David. They know that, uh, that David is hanging out in their wilderness. And Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds of Horish on the hill of Hakalah, which, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Now then, O king, come down. Do everything you want to do. We're not going to protect him. You can get him. And Saul said, May you be blessed of the Lord. And just think of Saul saying this. Isn't he doesn't want to do anything for the Lord, and he uses, he uses the name of the Lord in vain, right? May you be blessed of the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go now, make, make more sure, investigate, see his place, where his haunt is, you know, the specific place. And who has seen him there? For I am told he is very cunning. So look and learn about the hiding places where he hides himself, and return to me with certainty, and I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. I am coming to get him. So they arose, went to Ziph before Saul. David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah in the south of Jeshimon. And when Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, and he came down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard it, he pursued there. So there's this chess game going on here. Saul went on one. They got so close to one another that Saul was on one side of the mountain and David was on the other side of the mountain. Um, And... And then God providentially enters in and rescues David. How does he do that? He does that through the mouth of a messenger who says to Saul, we're under attack, the Philistines are attacking, we need you over here. And so he is taken away. Saul returned from pursuing David and went to meet the Philistines. Therefore they called that place, David and his men called that place the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and stayed in the strongholds of En Gedi. And then, again, they're going to be close to one another. It's very close in the next chapter. But what I want to... I want to just vamp on friendship for a little bit. Um, I already said that Jonathan was more than a friend. He was a trusted advisor. He was a protector. He was, a, in a sense, an, an armor bearer. He was, he was um, David's right-hand man. But he was not less than a friend. And, and friends, let me make a distinction that's helpful today, too. Friendship. Um, a lot of people talk about their spouses being their best friends. And that's fine. There should be friendship <laughs> in your marriage. Um, but, but your spouse is your lover. Okay, and there's a difference between a lover and a friend. Um, there's... There's a difference in, in, obviously, in quality. There's a dif- difference in, 
uh, also in intensity. Um, there's a one flesh union there that does not exist in friendship. And so there's the, um, the marriage relationship is, uh, I mean, the marriage relationship is the relationship that reflects Christ in the church. It is intense. It is powerful, okay? But friendship is, is important and, um, and powerful as well. Uh, <clears throat> remember when, when Jonathan dies, David says in his lament, your love to me was more pleasant than the love of women. Your love to me was more pleasant than love to women. That's 2 Samuel one twenty six. Um, and so he's even begin. he's even contemplating, you know, what the Jonathan has meant so much to me that there was something to it that was more gratifying, more more pleasant than the love he had for, of course, he, he didn't just have one wife. That complicates the issue a little bit, doesn't it? Um, he had multiple wives, and uh, perhaps that's part of the statement here. Um, but nonetheless, it, it speaks to the intensity of, of his love for Jonathan. But, I, you know... Friendship is just a few statements on friendship. Friendship is powerful. Um, it's it's a very powerful thing, and it's very difficult. I I think um, I think it's very difficult to have. At least for me, I've I've been I'm the type of person who has had few friends, but intense friendships. A few intense friendships. Some people are friends with everybody. Um, and, uh, and I'm jealous of that. I'm jealous of that because often it means that they just love people. They go after people. They, they spend time with people. They encourage people. And those with few friends are, are selfish. They, they reserve their affection, um, for other people often. Right, Corey? Corey, yeah, okay. (laughs) Um, Deuteronomy... Uh, 13.6 speaks to the power of friendship. If your brother, your mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend, who is as your own soul? It's interesting how it says that. I mean, it, it mentions mother, son, son or daughter, wife, or your friend who has, is as your own soul. Entice you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods with whom neither your, uh, you nor your fathers have known of the gods of the people who are around you, near you, or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other. You shall not yield to him or listen to him, and your eyes shall not pity him, nor shall your, you spare or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. But the point of that is a friend who is as your own soul can draw you after false gods because of the power of that friendship, Right? We tend to like the things that our, our friends like. We tend to get into the things that, that our friends are into. And if our friends are into idolatry, it's going to be a temptation for us as well. Um, friends can corrupt your morality because of the intensity of the relationship. I mean, I think we would all agree with this, right? We've all experienced this in our lives. Right, the friends you have will determine to a certain extent your um, pursuit of the Lord. Friendship is also so it's powerful. Friendship is also needful. Um, Job 
Think of Job and his relationship to his friends. <laughs> right? Are they being good friends to him? Well, uh, no. They're not being good friends to him. Friendship is needful. Job 6.14, for the despairing man, <laughs> this is Job speaking, for the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. The despairing man needs a friend, right? Who, and he, what does he need from him? He needs kindness so that he will not forsake the Lord. That's part of friendship. It's needful. Just like friendship can draw us away, friendship can also bring us back onto the path, right? We have friends. We remind them of God's truth. We remind them of his word. And here he is among friends who are like, man, what'd you do? What'd you do that God's smacking you down like this? And he's like, maybe a little kindness would keep me from like betraying the Lord. Um, the loss of friendship is very painful. Um, this is part, this is a, an aspect of Job's um, suffering that we don't often contemplate. Um, this is part of Job's agony, I think, discipline from the Lord. Um, Job 19, he says in um, 13 and 14, He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, and my intimate friends have forgotten me. So we think about his sores, we think about the loss of his family, we think about the loss of his livestock, we think about his wife cursing him, but we don't often think about the fact that everybody has abandoned him, even his friends. And then the friends who show up um, afflict him. And so here is he uh, lamenting that, my intimate friends have forgotten me. And so the loss of friendship is very painful. Uh, the Psalms often mention this loss of, of intimacy. Um, Psalm 38, 41.9. Psalm 88.18 says, You have removed lover and friend far from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. Right? As a part of the sad, part of affliction, um, God will, will remove lovers and friend. Um, friendship is work. Right, Proverbs, i got a bunch of verses here. Proverbs 17.9 says, <clears throat> He who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. Right? That's, a, that's a statement about our tongues, but it's also a statement about friendship. Friendship takes work. There, we have to show loyalty to friends. And, um, and we can separate intimate friends just by light words and by not being loyal. Um, friendship is, is uh, the word I would use here is sturdy. It's strong. It's structurally significant. It's sturdy. Um, Proverbs seventeen seventeen: a friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. A friend loves at all times, right? It, it doesn't ebb and flow. It's sturdy. It's constant, right? That's what uh, friendship should be, um, constant. Um, friendship is uncommon, Proverbs 18.24. A man of too many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Too many friends, you come to ruin, but there is a friend, right, that sticks closer than a brother. 
It's so it's uncommon. It's uncommon. I think um, I was lo- I was envying those who have many friends before, but sometimes those people with many friends have no no true friends. They just have uh, many. Uh, they just know how to ha- have fun with strangers. <laughs> They're an extrovert, right? And um, and yet. Uh, there, I think we would all say that there have been really good friends that we've had. One, maybe two, maybe three, um, but not more than that, that we would point to and say that was, that was a friend that stick, stuck closer than a brother. Um, friendship is founded on truth. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. A friend who wounds knows what's right. Right? That's why I say it's founded on truth. Friendship is founded on truth. You don't want friends who, who won't wound you um, because that means they're probably affirming you in what's wrong. Right? They don't know what's right. And we want friends that will wound us and say, Brother, love your wife. You treat her poorly. Right. Um, I heard you say this. You shouldn't talk like that. Those sorts of things. They should be. Um, and, and here's why: because God's word says this is how you're supposed to treat your wife as the weaker vessel. Those sorts of things. We want friends who, who, who know the truth and are willing to share it with us, even when it wounds. What um, if friendship is not founded on truth? What is it probably founded on? Any thoughts? Entertainment. That could be. Mm-hmm. I can hear the. I can hear that buzzing. It got so quiet. <laughs> if it's not founded on truth, then it's founded on flattery. What's flattery? It's not truth. Flattery is is lying, to somebody but in order to affirm them in what is not true, right? When you flatter somebody, you're telling them what is exactly the opposite of what is true. Um, uh, And so if if friendship is not founded on truth, it's founded on flattery. You surround yourself with people who flatter you. I mean, think of how many celebrities we know that their entourage exists just to flatter them. Right, just to flatter them. It's not founded on truth. Um, there was no flattery between David and Jonathan. There was, um, there was the telling of truth. There was covenant making. There was vows. There was um, profound love. A friendship is founded on loyalty and trust. John, uh, John 15 says this. <clears throat> John 15 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. So a little bit there. Um, he, Jesus gave to those apostles his father's word. And that was proof of his friendship. He entrusted them with what the Father had given him. 
That's friendship, when you have that loyalty and that trust. And you have something precious that's been given to you, and you pass it on to somebody else. Um, that was proof of his friendship. He entrusted them with something that was very precious. I think that's a, that's a strong part of friendship as well. Um, and then friendship with God is sort of a different category. A whole, a whole, a friendship with man is one thing, and then there's friendship with God. And what is friendship with God based upon? Just one simple thing. Believing Him. That's what friendship in God is based upon. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham <clears throat> believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Right? When we take God at His word, when we believe in Him, just as Abraham did, it's, and, and there's obviously justification that comes from the Father through that, and uh, this passage is, is speaking to that. But... Uh, I often forget that at the end of that phrase, it's, or in James 2.23, it says, and he was called the friend of God, the philos of God. Um, that's what James was, or that's what um, Abraham was. And so friendship with God is based upon believing him, taking him at his word, trusting in him, having faith in him, belief. And then the last thing I'll say on friendship is this. Friendship for men is is to be found in battle. Think of the context of David and Jonathan. They have a common enemy. They have Saul uh, as a common enemy. And there's danger all around them. The stakes are very high. Um, There's death uh, everywhere. And their friendship is solidified in the midst of battle. I think that's um, particularly important for men. Men... um, Men like to have something other than their own feelings for one another be the focus of their friendship. (laughs) A common goal, right? A battle to fight, whether that battle is, you know, putting wood and chips around a a, um, playground or whether it's actual warfare or whether it's... um, I mean, I, I think of the, the, the men on the, the personhood board with me, and we're praying together, we're fasting together, we're trying to end abortion. It's a battle. We're, we're interfacing with politicians, and, and um, it's bound us together very tightly. And yet, you know, one of them and I, we, we, we fight and get angry with each other about music, and he's an elitist and drives me crazy, and yet, yet... I love him dearly, and we can fight about those things and then get in this fight against something else and, and be arm in arm and not have any intensity, you know, any uh, trouble with one another. And so, um, you know, this, this is why elders' boards come get close together because they fight through things together. This is why deacon boards and the men get close together. This is why the men of the church uh, should be. Um, bound together as we fight um, in in Christ's church for uh, the kingdom on earth, and um, and so uh, I think that's unique to men. Right, friendship for men is is found in battle, whereas with women, what would you say it is? Friendship for women is.
That's right. That's right. Yeah. And that's I, that's I think the commonalities. I mean, that's friendship. I think that's that's that applies to both. But I think there are differences between the friendships between men and the friendships between women, there's going to be significant overlap. It's something to think about, but particularly for men, um, I think we see that, that friendship is forged in, in common efforts and in battle. Um, it may be that that's the exact same for women. It's just different fronts, different battles. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we would we would be good friends. I pray that we would think about our friendship, that, that we would think about what it means to be friends with you and that we would, we would learn about friendship in that and that we would apply it to our, our, our friends in this, this life. Father, I pray that we would be good friends. I pray that we would be loyal friends. I pray that our friendships would be founded on truth. I pray that we would um, be willing to wound one another uh, for the sake of your glory. I pray that we would put no friends above you, Father, that our friendships would be in the proper place and that we would, uh, we would, we would cherish the friendship that we have with you through Christ above all other friendships. And Father, we pray that you would uh, strengthen us for the coming week. May we honor you in what we say and what we do and what we think. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.